The reading of the scriptures from Acts chapter 15, reading verses 22 to 35. I invite your uh, reverent attention and hearing of God's uh, uh, word as we uh, read it publicly together from Acts 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, uh, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps universally accepted that uh, God uh, makes us one. He creates the church. Uh, he makes the church one. And yet, practically speaking, it's... Uh, perhaps pretty fragmented, if you think of all the denominations and on and on, theological battles and on and on. So uh, what's, uh, what's really the difference between what God has done and what God's people seemingly do continually? But perhaps uh, our text this morning is a beautiful picture of the church that acts on what God has done. It acts on the diversity of the church. Church in Jerusalem accepts the Gentile church, not as inferior, but as equal. Again, uh, we've studied last week the Council of Jerusalem, and now we're going to watch the Council act upon what they, uh, what they uh, have come to believe, namely that God has accepted us on the basis of His sovereign grace. And we should mirror that in our uh, dealings with 
uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should reflect it. Uh, we should, uh, if you will, uh, understanding that God accepted us, again, purely on His sovereign grace, no other reason, then perhaps we should become uh, all the more gracious uh, in our dealings uh, in the church. And it is uh, just that grace that mandates the unity of the church. Uh, and that's what we're going to watch and see in our, in our text this morning. And in verses 22 to 29, the council affirms uh, the work of the apostles. It acts upon uh, the assessment of the apostles as the outworking of the grace of God in saving Gentiles. They understand that God sovereignly and freely pours His Spirit out upon Gentiles, absent the law, and so they accept the Gentile churches based upon what God has done. Not what man has done, of course, because that doesn't make us acceptable before God, cannot, but based upon what God has done. Well, as you know, the context is theological controversy. So one of the reasons there's constant splitting in the life of the church, theological controversy, and so the church engages it. The Judaizers press for Gentiles to adopt the law and its work symbolized in circumcision. And of course, that flies in the face of what God has done in saving Gentiles and the prophetic fulfillment of the Spirit of God coming upon Gentiles, and there's no mention whatsoever of uh, the Gentiles uh, needing to be circumcised. Uh, it also goes without saying that in the universality of the atonement that Jesus saves Gentiles uh, vacant the works of the law. You think of the great text in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Uh, he purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Incredible diversity based upon the purchasing work of Jesus Christ. What he did uh, should be reflected in our lives uh, in terms of uh, being gracious uh, to others. Well, the Judaizers, again, contend for Christ plus circumcision. And they still do. Many, many churches that say Christ plus something they applaud what Christ did, but they seemingly suggest that, well, it's not quite enough. We need to supplement it. Which, if you think about it, utterly beggars what he did, but nevertheless, it's always Christ plus something. It's a technical word for that called synergism. Uh, it's from two Greek words, the preposition with, and then uh, uh, the verb to work. So we work with God. Um, it's fairly common in many churches today. Uh, we recognize that God did something, but He needs us to work with Him for it to be fully uh, effective. So Christ purchased us on the cross, but we need to work with Him to validate the purchase. Something like that. Again, synergism. In the Reformed faith, it's a, it's a different word. It's called monergism. 
the work of God simply alone, by himself, God works. It's a radical departure from synergism. Uh, it's just simply the radical truth that Christ saves. He saved Gentiles. He purchased Gentiles in the same way, not in a different way, in the same way uh, that he saved and purchased Jews. No difference whatsoever. And that's why the church is one. And so the Judaizers in the Council of uh, Jerusalem are rejected. Uh, and and the, uh, the church sends a letter with a party that includes uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, what's the letter do? Simply acknowledges what God has done. Uh, first, uh, it also acknowledges uh, that some uh, are acting independently. Uh, if you look at uh, if you look at verse twenty four, since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, had disturbed you with their words, unsettling uh, your souls. So some are acting independently, and that's really the Judaizers. Uh, reminds me of uh, words of the apostle. Uh, Paul in 1 John 2, 19, uh, they went out from us because they were not of us. And that's exactly what's occurring with the Judaizers. They go out independently uh, to disturb the churches because they are really not from the apostolic community. Uh, they don't really understand the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God. Uh, secondly, the, the letter says that they have disturbed the churches uh, they have disturbed you with their words. Uh, the word is primarily used physically in the sense of tearing something down. Uh, that's quite a disturbance to uh, tear down uh, the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God. It's used metaphorically here of spiritual trouble. It's also used of the Apostle uh, Paul in Galatians uh, uh, who really confronts this uh, issue uh, in a more targeted sense, Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, uh, speaking of uh, this different gospel of the Judaizers, uh, he says, which is uh, really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Essentially what Paul is saying is if you adopt a, a synergistic view, uh, that God did something, now I must work with him to make it real, then you've distorted the gospel. And in fact, you have. It's a distortion of the gospel. We don't think in those terms today. Uh, but Paul did, and uh, I suspect we should too. It is emphatically a distortion of the gospel. Uh, Christ alone saves. Certainly because you were unable to save yourself. That's radically true. Uh, but it's also just as true that if he needed your help, he wouldn't be a savior. So synergism is a distortion of the gospel. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So that disturbance carries over into this Galatian region where Paul and Barnabas have been proclaiming the gospel. And you and I just simply need to understand uh, there is always synergism that attempts to come into the church. See it for what it is, a distortion of the gospel. 
Uh, thirdly, Paul says of uh, this independent group that they're unsettling your souls. Uh, this, uh, this word is only used here, but it has the idea of upending a vessel. And so it's a very serious matter. Um, again, I repair to the notion of the splintering of the church. Is this simply that Christ plus something is everywhere today? If you think about the Roman Catholic Church, Christ plus the sacraments. Radical theology of the Roman Catholic Church, Christ plus the sacraments. Think of Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, reminded you last week, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church or Orthodox Christianity does not have a doctrine of justification. That's a pretty radical statement, but it's true to be sure. Just simply uh, faith plus works. In other words, synergism. I would remind you in terms of churches, they've sustained a lot of popularity, certainly in Oklahoma City. Synergism. Uh, if you think of uh, the Senate of Dort, uh, the followers of uh, Jacob Arminius, Christ plus free will. Again, uh, working with Christ and the freedom of uh, the human will that the Apostle Paul says uh, because of the sin of Adam uh, is uh, spiritually dead. That's why it's Christ alone. Because dead men cannot work with Christ to supplement his work. Ephesians 2.1. So in contrast, the Reformed Church affirms a unity uh, in solidarity with the first century church uh, that it is Christ plus nothing or grace alone. It's a monolithic view of the Reformed uh, faith really unified with the Council of Jerusalem and their actions and receiving the Gentile churches uh, equals based upon what Christ has done, the work of the Spirit. So fourthly, the church uh, council affirms the actions of the Spirit uh, and uh, his outworking in Paul and Barnabas. If you look at Acts 15, verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. No other burden. Uh, in other words, uh, simply Christ alone. Uh, then verse 29, uh, there is the reminder that they must vacate any form whatsoever of idolatry decided in the previous verses, now they're acting upon it. So they send this letter that you're our equals, and they just simply recount uh, the formulation of the council. It's, it's the truth that the work of the Spirit is this decisive event in eschatological fulfillment. You recall Acts 2, in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out upon you. That's what's happening in Acts 2. And then repeatedly is poured out upon Gentiles. Based upon what? The work of Christ alone. No mention whatsoever of circumcision. So, in that regard, the council mirrors what was done without any change whatsoever. Reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
It's what the church is doing now. They're mirroring the decrees of God to save heaven, the equality of the Gentiles, no reference whatsoever to law works, and certainly to use the modern phrase, uh, synergism is vacated. Monergism is accepted. The work of God, the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit alone. Uh, might be worthwhile to review here uh, the majesty of what it is to be forgiven and the cleansing power of the Spirit. The, uh, the New Covenant is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 37. Again, we know from previous chapters that the Spirit's been given to Gentiles. They've been cleansed. What does that mean? Ezekiel 37.23, And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things, with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. The cleansing power, the Spirit of God. Uh, reminder of the majesty of the gospel. We come to Christ. Uh, the Spirit cleanses us based upon the finished work of the Savior. No additions. No subtractions. So the new covenant foretold by Ezekiel is now engaged. Radical eschatological fulfillment. Because it's come upon Gentiles. And if the Spirit cleanses apart from law works, the council will add nothing. I mean, think about it. I mean, how could you supplement the work of God in terms of the doctrine of justification? You, you cannot. And so they simply mirror. Uh, what, what God has done. They affirm and acknowledge or agree that God has done it. And they don't add anything again. Uh, and certainly they don't subtract anything. Uh, again, I would remind you that the council doesn't validate or ratify what God has done. God doesn't need anyone to ratify or validate his works because God is sovereign, He can act freely and independently. He does in salvation because only He is free and independent. So they simply accept His work. They understand uh, it to be what it is. Uh, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. Uh, lastly, the council engages the mandate of uh, the universal reality and compelling necessity of abstaining uh, from idolatry, verse 29. You abstain from things sacrificed uh, to idols. Reminder of the pagan uh, temples that were everywhere uh, in uh, the world of the first century church. And I simply remind you continually, they were everywhere today. Uh, those, uh, those temples, of course, engaged in temple prostitution, uh, participating in uh, cultic meals, uh, in, uh, in uh, worship of uh, the idol, uh, which is, we know from 1 Corinthians 10, uh, engaging with the acts of the demons.
And so we must understand that we don't add to anything, we don't add anything to Christ's work, but uh, neither do we uh, supplement his work with pagan deities. Uh, that more and more are gaining acceptance in our culture. Occasionally take my car to get washed at a place and here's an idol with a bunch of apples before it. You know, I want to be a smart African and say, was your God hungry? I mean, those, those, that, that, whatever that is, doesn't eat the, the apples, but it's just simply some act of idolatry and sacrifice. Gone into restaurants and seen uh, statues of Mary with food around her. Never really understood that uh, as a confused expression of the Christian faith, but nonetheless, uh, I see it virtually every day that I leave the church to drive to my home because there's a statue of Mary with a, a pool of water around her. And uh, but I understand. Uh, Mary is a mediator in the Catholic Church. Uh, in our church, there's only one mediator between God and man. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We embrace his work alone. He doesn't need a, another mediator. Uh, his work is entirely uh, sufficient, but certainly in saving his people, it's efficient alone. Uh, and then the New American Standard reads in verse 29, uh, farewell, be a common ending to a uh, to a letter, but uh, I don't I don't take that reading. Uh, I see it as an imperative to be strong. Think of the context. Uh, be strong because the forces of disunity are compelling everywhere in the life of the church today. Be strong, resist them. The forces of idolatry are everywhere in the life of the church. Be strong. Resist them. Illustration of this, in uh, if you want to turn in your New Testaments to Second uh, Thessalonians, chapter two and verse fifteen. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Why is he saying that? Why is Paul saying that? Well, because we're prone to go weak. Uh, we're prone to be attracted to synergism. Hold to the traditions. What's the tradition? Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15. By grace alone. Resist everything else. Uh, in verses 30 to 35, the Gentile churches received the report. They rejoice and they continue the ministry. It's another beautiful illustration uh, of the outworking of the work of the Spirit that uh, the church in Jerusalem has accepted us based upon grace alone. God accepted us based upon grace alone, and so we should be gracious to others. And so we should embrace, embrace others graciously. In the case of a council, the Gentile churches are accepted as equals. Uh, and the church in Jerusalem conveys the equality to the Gentile churches 
That's the doctrine that the church is one. Because God created it one. And the council mirrors that, reflects that. It acts upon what God has done. How did God accept us? Graciously. Of all of your faults, of all of your sins and transgressions, He accepted you in the Beloved, in Christ, in sovereign grace. And that in turn should make us gracious and accepting in the case of the Jerusalem church, the Gentile churches, as equals. Let's look at an application of that great theological truth of God's creation of the church. Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Our response to the grace of God. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. It's the theology that God creates the church. He reconciles us, makes peace through Jesus Christ. We're to be diligent. I mean, here are actions, but they're actions based upon His actions. So it's a beautiful illustration that uh, theologians often refer to as the indicative and the imperative. Uh, let's look at the indicative, what God has done in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 15. This is what God has done. that He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So He makes the two, Jew and Gentile, into one, establishing peace between the two parties. Based on what? The grace of God in Jesus Christ. He reconciles us to God. We don't supplement His work. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. That's the reality of peace in the church based upon what God has done. We simply accept and reflect and mirror what God has done, creating unity out of diversity. So God makes us one, we're to act accordingly. That's really the, the challenge, but that's what Paul is embracing uh, in uh, Ephesians 4. Being diligent to preserve that unity recognizing what God has done, accepting others based on what? How God accepted you. So the clear practice is acceptance or unity based upon what God has done. Not what we want done or aspire to be done. The council never engages aspirations or personalities but rather the truth of the gospel uh, with its out applications outworking in our lives. There's an illustration of this in the Reformed faith. Think about it. The Reformers split with Rome. Yeah, they split the church. Based on what? The doctrine of justification. 
It's really the principal cause of the Reformation. I mean, I know there was uh, incredible uh, immorality in the church. That certainly uh, something needs to be addressed. Uh, but Luther finally realized it was more radical than morality. It was theological. The theology of the doctrine of justification. By grace alone, to faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a principal cause of the Reformation. Reformers were right to split. Uh, because if you confuse that doctrine, uh, you, as Paul has already taught us, you distort the gospel. And so, uh, the reformers split with Rome over the doctrine of justification because that doctrine reflects heaven. And of course, it's clearly established in Scripture. Clearly established. Let's think of another church split. Martin Luther split with the Reformed Church. Based on what? The physical presence of Christ in the sacraments of the Lord's table. The Reformers held to spiritual presence. Luther could not bring himself to totally abandon the physical presence of Rome, so he came up with consubstantiation. We began splitting hairs, if you will. I think Luther was entirely wrong. There's some evidence in church history that he recognized that later in life. By then it was too late. Now there's two churches, Lutheran and Reformed. He splits the church. Based on his aspirations prevailing over grace and graciousness. Simply the way of man. Luther was very clear on the doctrine of justification, then he confuses it in his actions in splitting the church. Uh, Certainly, uh, the moment you begin to move away from the great revival of the Protestant Reformation, there's constantly splitting, uh, if you will, over the five solas. Grace alone. The Council of Jerusalem has theologically given us that position. And that's why they accept the Gentile church based upon no other reasons other than grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Certainly we could add Scripture alone and to God alone be the glory because only He could do it. And that's what He did. And based upon what He did, we should be gracious to others. We accept the church, if you will, based upon how God has accepted us. And by the way, how did He accept you? Sovereign grace. Again, we, we always want to add and supplement. Uh, want to have the sense that uh, we played a part when only God can do. Just simply uh, the pull of uh, the heart that we need to supplement His work. Very clear that in terms of uh, the doctrine of justification uh, that we studied uh, last week, there's uh, no human works at all. Uh, I am not unmindful that the seamless follow-on to that doctrine is 
the doctrine of sanctification, in which we do participate, but not for salvific reasons, but as evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. I'm not uh, denigrating works, just simply only affirming uh, that they are vacant in terms of the doctrine of justification. If those matters are unclear to you, I would, I would encourage you to begin to re- read uh, your scriptures, read uh, Ephesians and the book of Romans, or read the great Reformed councils and creeds. They're clear. We should be clear. Doctrine and justification, only the work of Christ. I reminded you last week that uh, we are saved by works, uh, just not ours. Christ alone. His works alone. The majesty of His works as I think really the engaging focus of primary reason that we come to worship Him. Because we were entirely, totally unacceptable, rejected, dead, but God in His sovereign grace gave us life. And we believed. But we, we I mean, understand we also, <laughs> we also engage our aspirations and expectations and personalities. Just American culture. Our needs and aspirations sometimes prevail. And the church, again, constantly uh, splintering, fracturing. In contrast to what we have uh, just read of the decisive actions of the Council of Jerusalem, the theology of what Christ has done, their actions in accepting of the Gentiles to be totally equal. Doesn't have any reference whatsoever to personalities or aspirations or needs or wants, but simply what God has done. For multiple reasons, one of which our aspirations and needs are always changing, so must the church. No, that's what begins to distort the life of the church and fracture the church. And the subtlety is uh, quite profound. But again, we should always repair to the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, What happens when our personalities and aspirations become a driving force? Then we become the center uh, and that God must uh, meet our needs. And I would commend to you that that is a prevailing, surging theme and some church uh, life. It should not be so uh, in our case. God is always uh, central. Uh, Again, to God alone be the glory based upon what he's done. He was gracious to us, so we should be gracious to others. We should accept others, uh, notwithstanding their personalities and aspirations and needs and wants based upon what? What God has done in Jesus Christ. That uh, essential is what should unify us. Uh, C.S. Lewis is, uh, is brilliant here uh, in his uh, screw tape letters. Uh, 20th century, of course, a British uh, theologian, uh, 
context of uh, the letter is, if you will, to make it simple, uh, an older demon is teaching his young charge how to destroy the church. Uh, So he says to his young charge, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster and connoisseur of churches. Think about that. Looking for a church that suits him until he becomes the taster or connoisseur of churches. Again, we don't, uh, we don't really uh, look for a church that uh, suits us. We look for a church where, where God is pleased. And how is he pleased? Again, based upon our acceptance of the greatness of the work of God alone. Our aspirations, the concept of personality, the concept of youthfulness should be lost in all of that. We should be driven to the profoundness of the grace of God that he saved us solely and entirely based upon his grace alone. But people are tasters today. One of my favorite programs on television are those uh, restaurant programs where they go in and make meals, and then there's a panel of judges, and, well, Bowersocks, your curry sauce is sublime, but... Oh, the vegetables were entirely overcooked. You're rejected. It's the way it is. The majesty, the beauty, the brilliance, the saving work of Jesus Christ. When we deserve nothing but rejection and death and hell. Be careful of being a connoisseur. We, uh, in our culture, we're all customers and all critics now. Uh, our philosophy at the Grace Bible Church is there's a customer of one. That one is God. We come together to please him. Uh, we, we come to worship him because of his sovereign grace. Uh, we come to reflect, to mirror the basis of his acceptance of us in Jesus Christ and our acceptance of others. How did God accept us? Grace of God alone. No other reason. How should we accept others? If God has accepted them on that basis, we should so accept them. And that's why the reason that aspirations and personalities and what we want and need should begin to utterly retreat and be lost in the majesty of grace alone. So, simply the theology, really, of the Council of Jerusalem. And what the Council of Jerusalem does is act upon what they see that heaven has done and their acceptance of the Gentiles. Should be a prevailing reminder to us to preserve that unity. The words of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4, verse 3. 
be diligent to preserve that unity of what the Spirit of God has done. Where the two, Jew and Gentile, were made one by the sovereign power of God. It's very interesting uh, in terms of the Reformed Church. Um, one of the more popular theologies is that of John Calvin, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Very interesting to me that Calvin spends a lot of time on the doctrine of the church. If you recall, the church at Geneva fired him on one occasion. <laughs> and then realize their error and they bring him back. Uh, I was reading, uh, reading uh, recently, uh, Calvin says to embrace a church and that notwithstanding its many faults and petty dissensions. I mean, how could Calvin write that? could write that because they understood radically the grace of God, saving power, creating the church based upon His sovereign work. Learning that we, uh, we set aside faults because, by the way, when God saved you, uh, did God set aside your faults? He swallowed them up in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Forgive, forgave them totally and radically. should be a life-changing event. Because certainly we were faulty and certainly we engage in pettiness. God's saving power. Life of the church. Forging unity. Accepting the church solely entirely based upon God's acceptance of us. Think about it. How did God accept you? The work of Christ alone. And so God made us one in sovereign grace. Made the church one. The Spirit applied it in sovereign grace and power. The church reflects that oneness in unity. In verse 31, the Gentile churches rejoice. We are one, in effect they are saying, we are one with the church at Jerusalem. They are our equals. And I would simply remind you of the actions of the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, we should accept others because God has accepted us in Jesus Christ, notwithstanding many faults. Being gracious to others because God was sovereignly gracious to us in His beloved Son. And may that be a guiding principle of our own unity in our church in oneness because of Christ and His sovereign work of creation.